0: Good evening, everyone. Um, a few months ago when we were talking about doing like the Sunday evening in the Psalms, we were meeting together with Robert and, and Matthew, and, and they were like, all right, wh- which of you guys? Like, so it was Chris, myself, Robert, and, and Matthew, and they were like, all right, uh, when, are you guys, when are you guys preaching? I'm like, whoa, like we're, we're here to do the music. Um, <laughs> But so I told him, I was like, hey, you can put me down in pencil for, uh, for December. Because Chris, I mean, you, got, you stepped up, man. You, you went in right away. But um, I'm excited tonight um, to preach on, on Psalm 42. And because it's been a comfort to me. Um, I've always loved this psalm. There's been many songs written about it. Uh, we're going to sing one of my favorites later tonight. Um, and I found it was a, it was a great help to me over these last 15 or so months. So, um, and as I got into it, um, it looks like Psalm 42 and 43 are a continuation of the same Psalm. So not only am I doing one Psalm, but we're going to do two tonight. So I'd invite you to open your Bibles with me to Psalm 42, as we're going to read both Psalm 42 and, together, 42 and 43 together as we consider this text for us tonight. And one thing I I didn't realize um, as I started delving into this, that there's actually five books in the Psalms. The Psalter is comprised of these five books. They're sectioned out. And Psalm 42 and 43 kick off the second book of the Psalter. And while the first book of the Psalms contains contains mostly those written by, by David, as he's the noted author to all of maybe three or four Psalms in those first 41 chapters, The second book opens here with a different author, as we see the first collection of psalms written by the sons of Korah, which are chapters 42 through 49. And then we also see the first psalm of Asaph, which our brother Matthew uh, referenced earlier today, Psalm 50. Um, And we also have the last book in this this book, this last chapter, is is written by Solomon. So the psalm we're dealing with tonight, as I said, was written by the sons of Korah. And just a little bit of background I found on them from James Montgomery Boyce's commentary on the Psalms, just so we can get a little bit of an idea of who the writer is and kind of get a glimpse of where they came from. The Korites were from the tribe of Levi, and they were descendants of Koath, which was Korah's father. We're told in 1 Chronicles 6 that they were employed in the service of song in the tabernacle in the wilderness, and later in the temple in Jerusalem as well. In Boyce's commentary, he points out an interesting note. On the sons of Korah, and it's some interesting reading if you want to do that this week. I know we usually get some homework during the week, but if you read Numbers uh, chapter sixteen, we'll see the account of the of their father Korah. It's when the Israelites were wandering in the desert, their father Korah led a rebellion of two hundred and fifty men and community leaders against Moses, questioning his position as God's chosen leader. These men and their families perished by God's judgment as the earth split open and swallowed up their households and all that belonged to them and everything that they owned. And God rained down fire and consumed the 250 men. But for some reason, the sons of Korah were spared. You read on in chapter 26 of Numbers, verses 9 through 11, where they're giving a recap of what, of what had happened. It states that the sons of Korah did not die. And as we see from their later employment, that in gratitude to God and his mercy, they must have dedicated themselves to producing and performing the music used to praise God in the tabernacle and later on in the temple. How beautiful is this? Their father was a reprobate. He had led a rebellion against Moses and was justly punished for his actions. Yet his sons were spared. They had seen God's justice and wrath meted out against their own father, and yet had experienced his mercy on their own lives. And as a result, we see them here, still employed in the service of God in the temple. Please stand with me together as we read Psalm 42 and 43 tonight. To the choir, Master, a maskill of the sons of Korah. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Here is the reading of God's word. You can have a seat. I think it's safe to say that many of us have suffered with spiritual depression at some point in our lives for a variety of reasons. These last 15 months or so have been immensely difficult to navigate through for all of us. We've struggled with grief and despair Struggled with questions as to why things had to happen the way that they did. We Struggled with change. But all the while, knowing in the depths of our being that God is sovereign. Though our hearts may seem cold and distant for a time. Over these last 10 weeks, we've, in Sunday school, been going over the biblical theology of grief. And we've been singing that precious hymn, Whatever My God Ordains is Right. And it's been a comfort to our souls. I know it's been to mine. I love the verse that says, Though now this cup in drinking may bitter seem to my faint heart, I take it all in shrinking. Knowing that my God is true each morning new, sweet comfort yet shall fill my heart, and pain and sorrow shall depart. Psalm 42 and 43 deal with spiritual depression, but as we'll see, they don't leave us in our sorrows and our griefs, but they point us back to the one our hope is in. Just a little context on this chapter. It says, The psalmist appears to have been isolated and unable to go to the temple to worship God. Most scholars and commentators believe he may have been in exile or in captivity, possibly Babylon or Assyria. Because of his inability to worship God in the temple, we see him drift into a spiritual depression. We see this song of lament begin to unfold as the psalmist cries out to God for help. And as we'll see together, these stanzas of grief and despair turn into choruses of steadfast hope and praise as the psalmist reminds himself of who God is, the one true God who is steadfast and faithful, who does not change, he's immutable, a strong defender and deliverer who is just and merciful, who loves and cares for his own. In the opening verses of chapter 42, we see this longing for God this intense yearning for his presence. The psalmist feels separated from God. He compares his longing to God's presence to that of a deer searching for water to drink, to quench and to satisfy his thirst. The psalmist longs for God's presence with his whole being, his soul. The psalmist says, my soul thirsts for God, the living God, in verse two. He's in this constant state of sadness and grief so much so that he says, my tears have been my food day and night. He's been weeping here day in and day out as he's been crying out to God for help, and for relief, for rescue. On top of that, we see that he's being taunted by his enemies or his captors. In verse three, verse 3, we read again, my tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? So we see not only that the psalmist here is greatly distressed and saddened, He's away from his homeland and he's unable to worship God in the temple, but he's also being made fun of and taunted by his captors as well. It's just piling up on him at this point. He begins to remember the better times in verse 4, the good old days when he was able to worship God freely in the temple with God's people, to lead them in a procession to the house of God. All of this has the psalmist downcast and depressed. But what does he do? Does he just sit here and wallow in his own self-pity? Does he say to himself, woe is me. There's nothing that can save me now. I'll never get out of this mess. No, let's look and see what he does here as as we come to the first refrain in verse 5. He says to himself, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you at turmoil within me? Hope in God, and I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. The psalmist here is taking the initiative and he's asking himself, Soul, why am I cast down? Why are you at turmoil within me? And we can say, well, I mean, let's just look back at the first four verses. I mean, the plight he's in here. He's in exile, he's separated from God's presence. He's being taunted by his captors. He's feeling abandoned without hope. Indeed, Martin Lloyd Jones's book entitled Spiritual Depression, Its Causes and Cure, he states the importance of the psalmist here wrestling with his depression and not succumbing to it by reminding himself of what he knows about God. He said it's a case of the mind speaking to the emotions rather than letting the emotions dictate to the mind. Lloyd-Jones says, quote, you have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself. You must say to your soul, why are you cast down? What business do you have to be disquieted. You must turn on yourself, upbraid yourself, condemn yourself, exhort yourself, and say to yourself, hope thou in God. End of quote. We see the psalmist is reminding himself of who God is and what he knows about him. He's not relying on his own strength here. The psalmist knows who God is. He refers to him as the living God back in verse 2. He undoubtedly knows of the greatness of God and how miraculously delivered his people from slavery and bondage in Egypt and with his mighty hand destroyed Pharaoh and his armies, of how God provided for them in the wilderness, of how the faithfulness of God brought them to the promised land and defeated their enemies. I'm sure he's reminded of God's justice as well, given what we know about his father and his mercy in sparing him and his brothers. So the psalmist is leaning on the objective truths about God as he wrestles with not letting his emotions and circumstances overtake him. And what a comfort it is to know the living, omnipotent, faithful, and unchanging God. This is what the psalmist is placing his hope in, and it's what's sustaining him throughout his his uncertain trial. The confidence he has that he will again praise him, my salvation, and my God. The last half of verse 6, we see the beginning of the second stanza, as the psalmist states, My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. The trials and circumstances here are overwhelming him, as this imagery of, of waves crashing over him, unrelenting, just one after another. Sure, we can all relate here. But we see that the psalmist doesn't wallow here too long. We start to see a progression as he again reminds himself of what he knows about God and his attributes. In verse 8, we read: By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock. He's comforted here by the steadfast love of the Lord acknowledging that the Lord is with him day and night, that the Lord is his rock, even though he's feeling forgotten by God and not seeing him act right when he wanted him to. As again, he's being taunted by his adversaries. In verse 11, we see the refrain again. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you at turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God starting to see a pattern here. He's reminding himself again of this hope, and that's what keeps him going. The steadfast love of the Lord that's never failing, his rock and his salvation. When we come to the third stanza in in chapter 43, we see that on top of everything else in these preceding verses, the psalmist has been unjustly accused and wronged as he cries out to God for vindication from the deceitful and unjust man. Verses 1 and 2 in chapter 43, Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? Again, we see how the psalmist responds as he knows where to go for help, even though it seems he's been rejected by God. He knows that his only hope and refuge are in God Almighty, the faithful keeper of the covenant. He asks God to send his light and truth to lead him and bring him back to Jerusalem, his holy hill, to the dwelling place of God, the temple, where his exceeding joy is found. He longs for this restoration where again he shall praise God. Then we come to the final refrain in chapter 43. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. The psalmist's hope in the midst of sorrow and despair was grounded by the objective truth of what he knew and believed about the one true God. These attributes of God that he knew and had seen on display God's greatness, his faithfulness, his steadfastness, his justice, and his love and his mercy gave him this hope that he would be delivered and restored to be in God's presence where he can again praise him. Many of us here tonight can relate to the psalmist. We've experienced various trials and tribulations in this life. We've all experienced pain and suffering, maybe grief and loss and sorrow, maybe chronic pain or illness that just never seems to end. So what are we putting our hope in? Contrary to the false teachings that we hear of in like the health, wealth, and prosperity section of evangelicalism, as Christians, we're not promised a life of ease and happiness. That once we become a Christian, everything will be smooth sailing, that we'll be living our best life now. No, we're never promised that. In fact, it's the exact opposite. The Bible tells us that these trials that we're going to experience, these trials and tribulations, sufferings and affliction, will not be in vain. They have a purpose. They're for our good and for our sanctification and ultimately to point us back to Christ. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5, if you want to turn there with me, Romans 5, 3 through 5. Paul says, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Again, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18. You don't have to turn there if you don't like. It's a familiar passage. <laughs> 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18 So we do not lose heart though our outer self is wasting away our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight and glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal. James tells us in His epistle in the first chapter, To count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So as believers, our hope lies in the gospel, in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, who came to earth to redeem us from the curse of sin and death, and to satisfy God's holy standard of perfection and to reconcile us to the Father. The one who bore our sin in shame, who was mocked, beaten, and bruised. The one who lived a perfect, sinless life that we could never live, obeying the law perfectly, that we failed so miserably at. And then willingly laying down his life as the perfect sacrifice for sin, bearing the full weight of God's wrath in our place, though he himself was blameless and without sin. Then rose again the third day, defeating sin and death, and thereby making a way for us to be with him forever, to all who put their faith and trust in him. That's our hope. But if you're here this evening and this isn't true of you, if you've been putting your hope in the things of this world, I say repent of your sin and your unbelief, and put your hope and trust in Jesus Christ. I found a good quote from Charles Spurgeon's commentary on Psalm 42, but it was from the English Puritan, William Gurnall. It's on hope in the midst of trial. He says, quote, Hope never affords more joy than in affliction. It's on a watery cloud that the sun paints those curious colors in the rainbow. There are two graces with which Christ uses above any other to fill the soul with joy, faith and hope, because these two fetch all their wine of joy without dower. Faith tells the soul what Christ has done for it and so comforts it. Hope revives the soul with the news of what Christ will do. Both draw at one tap, Christ and his promise. End quote. As believers... We have the Holy Spirit to help us. We have God's holy, inspired, infallible word through which God has revealed himself to us. We see his character and his attributes there. As our brother Matthew pointed out this morning, we can rest in the greatness of God. We can rest in the fact that he does not change, that he's immutable. He's faithful to us even when we are faithless. He promised that he's never gonna leave us or forsake us He's merciful to us, and his steadfast love will never fail. So, beloved, in times of deep sorrow, when the storms of this life are raging, and our souls are troubled, and our hope is shaken, when our questions seem to have no answers, and we're being tossed about by the waves, don't let your soul be downcast. Don't wallow there, but direct your gaze back to Christ. Put your hope in God, our help, our rock, and our salvation. Let's pray. Gracious heavenly Father, we're so thankful for the hope that we have in your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for your grace and your mercy that you've shown us. Lord, we're thankful that you've chosen to reveal your glorious attributes to us through your word so that we can rest and trust and find refuge in you. Father, we pray that as you continue to sanctify us, that you would give us a spirit of wisdom and the knowledge of you, that we may know the hope to which we have been called and what are the riches of the glorious inheritance that is ours in Christ Jesus. We ask all this in your son's name, amen.